Hi, I'm Adam, and this is Stories from the East and West. Normally, I'm joined by my co-host Nitsan, but due to the current pandemic lockdown, she's far away from a decent accessible microphone. Don't worry, though, she is fine. 76 years ago this November, a US Navy ship carrying 700 Polish orphans arrived in Wellington, New Zealand. This boat full of Polish children who had been deported to Siberia with their families had finally found a sanctuary on the other side of the planet from their homeland. Keep listening to find out how they got there and what happened next. Coming up on Stories from the East and West. Zlín, Praha, Warszawa, Madrid, London, Paris, New York, Casablanca. Where you see a kind of totality of the human presence. Absolutely, absolutely, that is exactly Stories from the Eastern West. My name is Piotr. I was born in Poland, but when I was two and a half, my parents immigrated to New Zealand, so pretty much as far away as you could possibly get. While growing up, I'd heard about how a boat full of Polish children had arrived in Wellington, the capital, during World War II. I didn't really know much about it, and seven years ago when I moved back to Poland, I still didn't. I was immediately captivated by this epic and unlikely journey that landed 700 Polish orphans in a place that they hadn't even known existed. I could also relate to the experience of growing up on the other side of the world from your country of birth. I managed to track down four of the children and got them to tell their story. Their names are Stanisław Manteres, Józef and Stefania Zawada, and Wisza Świters. Uh, my name is Stanisław Manteres, and I live in Lower Hutt in, uh, in New Zealand. After the uh, invasion of Poland by Russia, uh, three weeks after the invasion of Poland by Germany, uh, our story started. Uh, we lived peacefully in a, in a village in eastern, what was then eastern Poland, which is now the Ukraine. My father was a, a farmer, and we, we were part of the around 1.5 million of Polish citizens who were deported by the uh, Russians uh, to uh, right across uh, uh, the Soviet Union. I was the youngest in our family. I was only four when I was deported. But my memory of those events is much more clear than the events of yesterday. I'm Stefania Zawada, one of the Polish children who arrived in New Zealand in 1944. My life was blissful in my childhood. That was up to five years of age when the World War II broke out and uh, the Russian soldiers arrived and they told my mum to pack. We were taken to the nearest railway station and uh, loaded on trains. I was born in uh, Walling in 1933. I don't remember much uh, from my earlier years, but I do remember that in 1940, we got sent to Archangel in Siberia by the Russians. My name is Malvina Zofia Rubisz-Sweeters. 
my family, my parents and younger brother were deported from Lvov to Siberia. They were taking people during the night. They would go into different homes and take people and onto the train. And Sobirais Firstami, you know what that means? Get ready with your with, with your things. You've got 20 minutes to get packed. So and took us to the railway station. And there were and all the there was a long train, but the train was not uh, for for people but to carry animals across. So it just had a little little windows at the top of the uh, carriages. Very crowded, extremely crowded. We were all squeezed up. Uh, uh, the stench was, uh, I, I, I think I still can remember the stench, cold uh, and utter lack of hygiene. Where a hole in the, in, the, in the wagon was suffice for the toilet. I remember someone saying, oh my God, we're crossing the border of Poland. And then people started crying and started praying. And that's, that's how we left the border of Poland. And we were taken, taken a long way through Russia. Took, we were in that, the train for about <clears throat> almost three weeks. And by the time where we got out of it, it was in Russian uh, Siberian forests. We found that in they, they were deported from Lvov, uh, intelligentsia, teachers, lecturers, you know, taking them to Siberia and telling them, this is where you're going to die, this is where you're going to die. We were transported to the northern part of European Russia, which is in the Republic of, of Komi, and uh, we were uh, taken to um, a labor camp. This is a forced labor camp where uh, we were intended to work as uh, slave labor in the forest, felling forest. It was a timber industry. My father worked in the forest. My two elder sisters, who were there at that time about 14 and 12, they were also made to go into the forest. The difficult part of it was, uh, of being there, was that there was constant hunger. Everything was rationed. You worked, you performed your norm, and you were given a sheet of paper, and then you could collect your bread from the shop. The food it was not enough to sustain life. You know, you had to, um, um, you virtually had to sell things that you had with you. By the time the two years elapsed, we had hardly anything. Clothing was, you know, rags and uh, not sufficient to to survive in the cold there. But we did survive. The, fa the family did survive that camp. And uh, I was in the kindergarten age at the time. So I remember the, I remember the classes in the kindergarten. We were told, uh, indoctrinated, that there is no God, that we should forget about our uh, beliefs and the beliefs of our parents. And there's only one person who is mightier than any God is Joseph Stalin. And they used to call him Batushka Stalin, which means uh, grandfather, uh, a nice grandfather, 
uh, Stalin. And uh, this, this, this scene which is fixed in, in, in my memory is a, a, a portrait of Stalin hanging on the wall, all smiles and benign looking. And uh, she said, now we're going to show you that there is no God. So she told us to pray to God in our own way. And then she said, okay, ask now God to send you uh, sweets. We pray to, to, to God who did not send us the sweets. We prayed to Stalin, lo and behold, uh, the sweets started to fall out of Stalin's portrait. You know, we were tiny kids, but not that stupid. We could see the ploy. I remember not being impressed with that at all. When we went back to our barracks after the classes, um, told our parents what happened, and they became very irate. So they went to the commandant of the camp uh, and uh, and told him that uh, he he controls uh, our bodies, but uh, let, let leave our souls alone. He said, "Don't don't dare to do that again." Of course, things changed uh, when Germany attacked the Soviet Union. At four o'clock this morning. Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. Without declaration of war, the German bombs rained down from the sky upon the Russian cities. And Russia finds herself on the side of allies. And our government in exile wants to save as many people as possible. And that's where uh, General Anders managed to start Polish army. And about 72,000 men were taken, and of course Stalin wanted them to fight in Russia, but Hitler was moving so fast and so on, and, and Anders managed to get those, this Polish army out of Russia. But as far as the civilians were concerned, Polish civilians, only about 36,000 managed to be taken out. In our camp, the Polish people got together and they got a train and tried to get out as far as possible. It took us almost uh, four, five, perhaps up to six months to traverse uh, the distance from the north of Russia down to the south of Russia. And on the way there, my father died in the train of starvation, sort of. And when the train stopped in Kazakhstan, he was just taken out of the train, and that was the end of that. And then mom, she just collapsed one day, and that was that. And that left the three of us, three brothers, and uh, that's how we became orphans, of course. We actually did manage to, uh, to get down to the uh, Republic of Uzbekistan. By that time, my parents were very, very ill, so there was only then the two of us left, my sister and I, because the rest of the family was taken to the hospital. Uh, we had no no food uh, at all. Uh, virtually, we'd go out to the fields and eat the roots of the uh, local wheat, and uh, uh, that's how we survived. 
those news of Polish army going to Iran to fight in the Middle East. And uh, the Polish army took as many orphans as possible because cause in interim there were many families, like my husband's family, where both parents died. And uh, so they tried to collect the orphans from around the countryside. I remember the scene where over the hillock a horse-drawn vehicle, which seemed to be occupied by bandits, though bearded and skeletons and rags, so I started to run, run away, and there was this Polish woman. She called out to us, "Dzieci, dzieci, children, children, don't run away! I think this is the Polish army." So, so they took us. We were taken to to Krasnovodsk, which was the big port on the Caspian Sea, from which Poles were being sent to Persia. We traveled from um, Krasnovodsk on a boat, very much overloaded boat, I would say, because there was sort of only a sitting space. There was a panic to get on because uh, some people, perhaps many people, were not allowed on the ships because the Russian secret police, the NKVD, uh, had a list of whom they considered to be persona grata. Uh, imagine being after all these years, months, being allowed out of Russia, where she stopped and, they, and, they, and told to get off. My parents expected to be able to get on a boat and be, get, get permit to leave the Soviet Union, but that no longer could. And they were actually arrested and they were told to take up Russian citizenship. And they were, they, both of them refused and and they were placed into prisons. We were taken to Caspian Sea to Pahlevi, that's, that's the harbour in Peja, and the International Red Cross was looking after us there. But we were in such a very bad state that it was bad for Stalin, so he said, no more out. So only about 36,000 civilians got there to Pahlevi, and that was really a haven because there was sand there, there was water there, there was, uh, you know, they set up camps for us. And this is in Iran, which was a rather poor country at the time, poor because of um, internal wars. But uh, they still um, they managed to, to, to feed us. Very shortly afterwards, when the orphanages in Isfahan were ready, all fitted out with beds, etc., we were taken to Isfahan by buses. Isfahan was the old capital city, older than Tehran. The ladies in charge of this place, the Polish ladies, they uh, wanted to start teaching. And the lessons were in the sand. We had nothing to write with, so finger in the sand. That was the blackboard. So we started the schooling, but they, then a new blackboard uh, um, was provided beautiful, green, uh, clear, uh, no marking on it as yet. And I remember being the first boy to be, to, to be told to write on that board. We had lessons only in the morning because most children were 
if not sick, they were completely depleted of all strength. And we had rest in the afternoon. But uh, still we could learn quite a bit. Iran became dangerous for the Poles to stay there for a number of reasons. One is the Russians were really, their influence in the north of Iran was very strong. There was a good chance that we would be back back to back to Siberian slave camps. There was also the Germans knocking at the Caucasian mountains for the oil fields. So we were not in a very good uh, situation. So the Polish government in exile, uh, situated in London, tried to prevail upon the uh, countries, allied countries, to take some of the children for the duration of the war. Groups were sent to Africa or something or other. And so there were fewer and fewer of us there. And at one time, the Polish embassy noticed that, oh, New Zealand invited 700 Polish children and caregivers. New Zealand? New Zealand was there. Never heard of New Zealand. So my my mum wrote to my father, who was in the army, and they wrote a letter and said, it looks as if we're not going to have free Poland we're fighting for. If you can, go to New Zealand, and if I survive, I'll join you. We were selected to go to, to New Zealand, so we went to, to Bombay, where we boarded into a, a proper sort of a army transporting ship by, by the Americans. It was a huge, like a 10-story building, which it probably was. And uh, it was carrying New Zealand and Australian soldiers uh, on leave from the uh, war front back to their homelands. Uh, and that uh, trip was food, was just, uh, I'd never seen so much food. My bunk was next to the kitchen door. <laughs> I was always first out there. And cook would call out, have you washed yourself? Have you? So no, I haven't had, I haven't, I haven't washed myself yet. Oh, come on, come on, just load up your, your tray with food. We arrived in New Zealand, uh, in Wellington, first of November of 1944. Beautiful day, it's like today. Beautiful. Anyway, the welcome was an oh, exceptional welcome. Prime Minister of New Zealand was there, and the Polish, uh, Polish consul uh, from the Polish uh, government in exile in London. There's a whole baby of volunteers, nurses from the hospitals, and uh, who had uh, the night before prepared huge amounts of sandwiches at the nearby railway station, which is Wellington Railway Station. The scouts had little boxes for us. Uh, in the boxes were, were biscuits and sandwiches and a green apple. And we liked the biscuits and the sandwiches, and we thought, why don't they let the apples ripe? <laughs> why do we get green apples? <laughs> There were two trains which took us uh, to the township of Payatua, north of Wellington. Uh, it's a small town. 
at, at the time it only had about 2,000 uh, people. It serviced the surrounding farmland, just beautiful, uh, flat and rolling uh, pasture land, mainly sheep and, uh, and cattle. It's an epitome of a quiet New Zealand uh, town. Uh, and uh, on the way we were greeted by the New Zealand public. Even the children were uh, standing on the, uh, on the out in the farmland and waved to us as we passed. The camp was ready for us. It was a camp at one time. It was a race course. Then it was um, remade into a camp for whoever, you know, like the Germans, Italians, and whoever else you know stood on that side of the of the wall. They were taken out of the camp and put into Songs Island, which is right in the middle of the harbor. But it didn't occur to them to remove the barbed wire around it, <laughs> around the camp. And when we were driven to the camp and so on, said, oh my God, not again, you know, barbed wire all around the bloody thing. <laughs> That was our reaction. The New Zealanders didn't think of it and so on. So by next day, they had taken taken them off. Uh, we were very well looked after. The, uh, the food was just, you know, uh, Ang- the English bland uh, type of food. But uh, it was there's plenty of it. It was plenty of it. And, uh, and the uh, fresh air and the river just close by. And the farms and the sheep there and the and the and the cows, some boys, uh, the more adventurous would go out and try to milk the cows for milk, and certainly uh, so neighboring farmers were very tolerant but not very happy with the situation. We were rather fascinated by the camp in many respects. Very life was very much normal, more normal, because very shortly after we arrived uh, at the camp. The school started. We had all lessons in Polish, all subjects were taught in Polish. It wasn't easy because I was very much behind. It was a Polish camp, a full stop. It was the full sense of the word. Uh, there was no English spoken by us. Only later they started to teach us when they realized we were not going to go back, that their chances are of not going back to Poland. The idea was that after the end of the war, we would be able to return to Poland. But that never eventuated because um, as the war ended, Poland became a satellite of Soviet Union. Well, we couldn't go back to Poland because we would be persecuted again and so on. Poland wasn't free. Poland was taken over by Russia. And the New Zealand government gave us a, a choice of either staying in New Zealand or returning to Poland. So we decided to stay in, in New Zealand. Don't think I can't remember anyone, really, who, of the children who just stood up, I want to go back. We knew we were waiting, we were going to return, and somehow that idea was that things will change in Poland. A few of the families, a few of the children returned to Poland to join up with their relatives there, or parents, or whoever was left there. And... uh, and virtually everyone that I've met of these former about 90-odd children that went back, they were very, very, very sorry or regretted their departure from New Zealand. They, they think of New Zealand as a lost paradise, that's how they describe it. Polish government in London, who was paying the staff who were looking after us, was no longer recognised and therefore could no longer 
continue with it and there was an agreement with New Zealand government and New Zealand government took over the care of the Polish children. The government decided to take care of us and gave us a, a, a chance to either go to work or, or, or learn trades or go to school. But then eventually uh, it was decided by the authorities that the camp would close after the last of the children, of the youngest children, had finished their Polish schooling there. There was a gloom over the camp. You could almost feel it. You feel the, the darkness, the gloom of, of, no, of knowing. Uh, I get emotional sometimes on this. But uh, of knowing that it's all finished, you know. As we moved from country place to country, it, it, the first place that became sort of home was Isfahan. But uh, the Padua came, became, eventually became home to the point where uh, the camp was uh, disbanded and closed down. There was uh, uh, a lot of sad faces around, you know, we leaving home. Well, I was in the camp for only one year, but from the camp we were being sent to schools and um, all over New Zealand. And New Zealand families were asked, would they like to take a Polish child, an orphan or something, and send, send them to school and so on. Our knowledge of the English language was not sufficient. It was very, very pidgin English. <laughs> but... Uh, in St. Mary's College, there were many Polish girls here that came at the same time. So they put us into one class and tried to concentrate only on English as far as possible. We had an excellent teacher there, and uh, she really went back into this sort of beginning spelling. Spelling you had to learn, and I'll never forget when we were traveling by tram, and we would be repeating our spelling. Beautiful, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I was sent to a school in Omoru on the South Island, and I stayed there for five years. And then I came back to Wellington. Then worked in, in accounting offices, like mainly in big firms. And the one that I stayed the longest was about seventy years. Was Ford Motor Company. And uh, that enabled me to, to buy a house in uh, in Koro Koro in, in Wellington here and, and uh, establish a family after I met Stefania and married her. I think I've seen him from the distance in the camp, but I didn't pay any attention. <laughs> and of course, what, what really happened, Joseph was in Omuru, but used to come for holidays later to Wellington. A whole group of us got together, young people, and we used to go tramping on picnics and things like that. And that's how we really got yeah. to go. Uh, no, 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 no. 60 years ago. <laughs> and you know, he did everything properly. He spoke to my father first. <laughs> <laughs> He, he, my father wasn't informed, but he asked for permission <laughs> to marry me. <laughs> we had four children, and uh, here we are now. Our children just about married off now. 
all the older ones and uh, got 15 or 14 grandchildren <laughs> and uh, and we are happy here now. I was uh, uh, lucky to have met my wife who is also Polish and we are uh, we live in this bi bilingual uh, world. I'm, com I'm completely bilingual. My accent is uh, is undoubtedly a foreign accent. It's not a New Zealand accent. But I tell the New Zealand, listen, you are the ones that have an accent. I've been here longer than you have because I've been here 75 years. And how long have you been here, pray? <laughs> so that's uh, uh, that's uh, it's, it's it's just part of life. It's it's it's, it's not, there's no bitterness in it at all. It's just thankful that I, you know, I have uh, managed to live in the in the in two cultures and live the two cultures side by side. Mum wrote to me and she said that she would, uh, they would like to come to New Zealand. Mum actually lived through hell having lost her children. It wasn't very easy for anyone to be allowed to come from the Eastern Bloc. And uh, it took a long time and by the time everything was done. And then, of course, uh, they arrived in New Zealand 17 years later before, after seeing them. But I didn't really know them by then, really. Yeah. I didn't know, but I was prepared to face it. Uh, and so was my brother. But uh, they arrived and look, they are wonderful people, especially my dad. He had the situation quite right, but I think mum a bit... I would say that she left little children who sort of like me, I would have been throwing myself on her neck. And, you know, that, that affection, I was, you, you are scared of it. This day I'm considered a foreigner in a mild way by the New Zealanders, and I'm considered a foreigner back in my own land uh, in Poland. That's the shape of it. So, um, uh, which was probably just as well because that made me realize uh, quickly that where my place is, and uh, this is my family here, and I'm used to this climate. I like the Wellington cold winds and and rain. I actually do like I like it. Uh, we have a Polish association in, in, uh, in Wellington. Uh, we had a number of reunions now. Every five years, uh, our children and grandchildren organize the reunions for us. It's a big, big event. Um, people come from all over New Zealand and also from, from overseas to, you know, the former children. So yes, we keep contact now. We have, I have a, a, a very good friend of mine is Yusuf Zavada, who only lives down the road, six kilometers away, but that's down the road. Uh, Stefania is also one of the former children. Uh, and this number of them are scattered around here. In fact, I, I'm really in contact with nearly all of them because it so happened that I'm one of these people that clings to the past, you know? I remember many of the friends that were at the camps and all that, I keep in touch with them, and then people are uh, sort of uh, well, let's face it, we're all passing away. Uh, we never returned back to Poland permanently, simply because there was nothing to return back to. And so it was a gradual process. Eventually, we started to 
put your foot root in here one way, you had your root in the other leg over there, but eventually it all became common ground. There were two localities from uh, opposite sides of the world which became one. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. Our parents wanted us to be educated, that's why they left their native, uh, their native village just north of Krakow to migrate to, to the east before the war so they could afford to educate us. But well, they, one of their wishes came true because yeah, we became educated <laughs> in, our, in our foreign country, but we did. Um, yeah, uh, so that, that's, that's, that's my life. This episode of Stories from the East and West was written and produced by Piotr Wojcicki for CulturePL and hosted by me, Adam Jaworski. It was edited by Wojciech Alekszak with some help from me, and Wojciech also did all the music and sound design. We'd like to thank Josef and Stefania Zavada, Stanisław Manteres and Malvina Zofia Rubisch-Schwieters for sharing their stories with us, and a special thanks to Ambassador Zbigniew Gniatkowski and Anna Gołębicka-Buchanan at the Polish Embassy in Wellington for helping us produce the episode. Make sure to subscribe or check our feed next month. On the last day of November, we'll be releasing a story about a man who gave an entire country hope in the darkest of times. See you then.